Hi, welcome to Project Geospatial. I'm Adam Simmons, here back with my colleague, Daryl Murdoch, and for another episode of Adam and Daryl View the World. Hey, great to be back. Uh, Daryl, uh, we have a special guest this session. You want to introduce? Absolutely. Uh, so today we have uh, um, True Weather uh, founder and CEO, Don Birchoff. Um, Don and I are, are, are friends from, from other times and other places, but uh, um, Don's got a really interesting company, uh, an interesting business that he has built, and, uh, and, and a really interesting background that quite literally is centered around weather, the use of weather. Um, and uh, uh, Donnie, uh, welcome today, and uh, really glad to have you on the show today. Well, hey, Daryl, thanks for having me. And you should know that the only person that calls me Donnie is my sister. So congratulations on that. Yeah, well, so, you know, that means that I'm part of the family. So it just That's makes right. me happy, right? Uh, so uh, uh, so Don and I actually play on a softball team together also. And, and so where we uh, we were just uh, reminiscing of last year when we turned five double plays in one game. Yes, indeed. Uh, so uh, a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. No, so, so I'm interested of of what you do and some history behind uh you you got an impressive background don you want to go into that yeah i play third base that's what i do <laughs> third base. <laughs> okay well i mean we can go into baseball i mean that's your, your yeah, favorite yeah, subject yeah. daryl it, it is no, right so no i i i no i i have a lot you know we have a lot of fun um so you know my background is um at seven years old i uh i knew i wanted to be a meteorologist and it's, it's kind of interesting in the weather business, you'll probably find about 80% of meteorologists know it before the age of nine. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a mystery. I don't know why that is, but um, that just gives us a good head start in uh, growing our background. And I went to school, got my degree in meteorology, and then uh, went into the Air Force for 24 years. Um, I started off flying uh, as an airborne meteorologist. I have about 300 hours uh, flying on an EC-135s and KC-10s, which was really good. This was back in the mid-80s, 1980s, and that was a time when we didn't have as good a weather data as we have now uh, globally. And I was responsible for helping the drag fighters uh, overseas. Uh, these were F-16s, some of them single engine, that were you know, dragged over with uh, 18 in a group with three tankers. And you know, it gets pretty hairy when you don't have weather intelligence. So. Um, they sent us up there because they were worried about having quick reaction to going, knowing where to go. But that was the real valuable experience because that really set the stage for where I am today in really understanding the weather at a, at a, at a detail that, especially aviation weather, at a detail that most aviation meteorologists never really experienced because of the in-flight operations. I, um, I also supported President Bush. Uh, I was his weather person, the first President Bush for Air Force One. I have some good uh, scary stories around that because, uh, you know, we're always right, you know, weather people, always right. And um, I I then uh, went off and I started just getting, you know, more more responsibility and I built big regional weather centers from the ground up. Started with uh, no nobody but me and built it into a 108 person regional weather center in two years uh, supporting uh, operations. Uh, for Army Air Force tankers, um, Army helicopters, and uh, actually during 9-11 for the CAP missions, we did uh, probably over 500,000 support missions. And um, I also led some big changes in the way aviation weather is done in the military and the Air Force by implementing some uh, risk management approaches 
uh, in airlift tanker operations around the world that cut weather delays from 5,000 a year to 1,800 a year in one year without any wow. improvement in weather prediction. It was just the way people use the data. That's the biggest challenge we have. There's a lot of good weather data falls on the floor because it's not being properly used by the end users. Most people think they understand weather because they see it on TV. But <laughs> in reality, there's a lot of different weather data that could be applied to different problem sets. And then how you translate that into a workflow and use it for the right problem really is the value in the weather data. And so the cost of weather on the U.S. economy is $643 billion a year. And through the work that we have done in the Air Force, we believe 40% of that, $200 million almost, is recoverable, not even by improving forecasts, but just in how the data is being used properly. And this is a big challenge because unfortunately, a lot of people carry a lot of weather baggage on their back. You know, they, they don't believe that we could be good enough to be actually integrated into a business system like that. But the fact of the matter is, if you have the right system set up, you can get the value of that and, and get that return on investment. I, um, I ran an Air Force base in Central Asia, the main staging base in Afghanistan. I had 1,500 people responsible for all security, um, terminal operations, um, feeding people, bedding them down. Uh, you know, it's, it's nothing better than having to eat your own weather forecasts as your dog food when you're trying to clear runways uh, in, in ahead of a snowstorm. And we, um, I, you know, I helped build the Afghan army. I was up in uh, the Joint Chief of Staff and I was the lead for uh, Afghanistan for policy and strategy from 2002 to 2004, which is a pretty significant period. I then retired and went to the Weather Service and I was uh, lucky enough to become Science and Technology Director. And I had a $130 million budget. And in that time, I got to see all the great science and technology that's trapped in the labs and universities that is not getting through into operations. Um, it was a very frustrating period for me because we had money, but we just, you know, we just couldn't get it focused on the right things because you can't move fast enough, right, with the bureaucracy. Some of those, you guys know this because some of you have been working in government systems for a while. Some of those requirements are written 10 years before you even uh, get it out to operations. And by that time, the technology has advanced so much. Or longer, that, right? Yeah. Or longer. Or longer. And I was really frustrated because we had people in the weather service that could go into Best Buy and get a better technology than we could give them in their weather offices. And so I um, and then I had a lot of folks in the uh, science and technology research area coming to me and saying, look at this capability we have. Look at this. And it would be like teasing me. You're bringing me these great toys. And I look at them and go, I can't I can't do anything because the money's all tied up. Even though I look rich, we're not rich. Right. Every dollar is accounted for. So. After about four years, I decided that I can have a bigger impact uh, outside the government than I could inside the government. Because I used to watch folks come in and talk to leadership in NOAA or the DOC and things they were telling folks. I've been telling for years, but once they heard it from somebody else, all of a sudden, whether for whatever reason, it became valuable to them. And I, I, I quickly realized you can have more, more uh, uh, you know, impact. So I, I left, I re, you know, the government, and then I just embarked on a, uh, you know, several years I worked for Unisys, but got my PL chops, got my business chops. But then I started this company, True Weather, in 2015, and the whole focus is taking all these lessons learned, all this capability that I've seen, and 
you know, just bringing it together to accelerate science and technology trapped in the labs and accelerate it into commercial operations so we can really serve the industry better than what we're doing today. And we can. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit. And so we built an analytics platform uh, and we, we could take in different data types. We can pick and choose which ones for which mission. We can slice and dice it down to the specific mission profile, depending on what the weather pain points are. And, you know, we're not stuck to one model or one data feed. And I built it to be fungible because I realized that it had to be plug and play. And we're now able to take add sensors. Some of our customers have bought sensors that we plug in our system. And within a day, they could see it on their in their GUI with all my other data. And now we're filling in those gaps. So, you know, we've, we're working on that problem of not making, you know, not using the data properly. We're training and working with people to say, look, this is what you got to do with the data. We're starting to get back some of that ROI for them. You know, they could get a 10 to one return on investment with our data if they use it properly. And now we're starting to close the gaps in the sensing because weather, you know, is it, we don't have a lot of sensing. We have a data desert below 5,000 feet. We could talk more about that. But the point is, is we're starting to fill that in and we need to do that for autonomous industry because it is, it's just, this is the best business case we've ever had for microweather and we don't have the infrastructure out there to support it. And we, if we don't well, do that, it's going to be a problem. Hey, yeah. Don, just for the sake of our audience, can you go into some of the uh, problems that uh, are with weather? So people, yeah. people may not realize, you know, people probably think that weather is kind of a, baked technology or baked set of sensors like we know it but that's far from the case right can you discuss all the problems and why sure. it is still a big business right yeah well i think you know first off you know let's let's talk about what the state of the science and our computer processing is and our data um you know our predictions you know when people make fun of us first of all we are better than 50 percent um, we're like 75 to 80. So I want to make that clear. All right. Uh, so yeah, well, why do you always have like that 1% chance of rain when it's like clear blue 22? Well, because actually statistically there is an outlier every hundred times. And that's the thing is that people, you know, make fun of folks when they say, you know, 20% chance, but it's all based on statistics, which gets into another whole rabbit hole on how people perceive probabilities and why I don't think it's a good idea. Uh, unless you're trained, unless your user or your stakeholders trained on how to know how to use those probabilities, right? That's another issue for another time. But um, you know, back to the three, the pro, the challenge is that um, we have um, we have a lack of data, real time data. Uh, satellites are great, but they attenuate below five thousand feet, uh, so you you kind of have really good coverage in you know above five thousand, but then. The attenuation, some of them get through. We have microwave that does get through. But most of the time, it, you know, we have ground-based sensors and we have satellites. And then we launch balloons, you know, at very, you know, twice a day at very few locations to collect the vertical profile of the atmosphere. And we have some airplanes that fly in out of airports that we get collect some data. But the amount of data we're collecting in this boundary layer is so minuscule that most of our models are just – they're, you know, they have, they don't have sufficient data to perform well, right? So that's the first problem is that it's a lack of data. Sometimes we don't even know what's really happening right now at 2000 feet. We don't know. I mean, we know there's wind. We know it may be a little windy, but we don't know if it's 20 knots or 40 knots, you know, 30 knots. The second problem is computer processing. So whether it was the original big data 
And we developed a lot of our own capabilities to fuse that data and assimilate it back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And we've always been on the edge of computing, right? We've always driven the biggest computers. You know, we, we always have some of the largest computers in the world running weather models. And the problem is, is that we need much bigger computers to be, even if we had the data, we wouldn't be able to process it fast enough and turn it around in time to, to, to have a big impact. So that's the second problem. And the third problem is the science. Now, we, I would argue that we, we understand a lot about what's, what nature is doing out there, but we also don't understand a lot. We, we're still learning about what forms a tornado. I mean, I know we could talk in general terms about it, but how can we predict it? What are the signs and signals of prediction? We're still learning that. So, I mean, I still maintain we have more science on the shelf than we're using. And that, that we want to get that science used that we have. But that's the big weather dilemma right now, why we're not as accurate as we like to be. Now, why is weather big business? Imagine if I can forecast the weather perfectly and I could tell you exactly what was going to happen with no uncertainty. Would you be really interested in knowing whether you should send your workers out to perform a task when you know that, there's a, that they're not going to be able to accomplish it because it's outside? No, you wouldn't do it. You, you know, you keep them back in the office. You'd have them work on other things. You'd have them get on the phone, make some sales calls, you, you know, whatever. Right. But because weather's uncertain, people will still go out or because they don't use the right data or because they don't have confidence or they're not using it properly or they're shopping for weather. You know, like people shop for weather. They take it from five different places and they pick the one they like the best. That's not really a good solution. I mean, somebody admitted that today to me. They said, you know, I shop for what a pilot. He said, yeah, I shop for the best weather and I picked the best one. So I know I could fly. And that, that's kind of not the reason we want to use the weather, right? We don't want you to die. So, uh, you know, bottom line is these are the challenges. And um, if we, you know, we're getting better at fusing that data together, we're getting better at, you know, providing what I call sensors to decisions and simple insights. We can do that really well. We can tie that weather data into their automated decision processes as part of a risk management framework. Um, and that could be really valuable in targeting where your assets, you know, where to deploy your assets for a particular day, try to get the best weather conditions, get, you know, hit the right nicest weather frameworks that you need. Look at how you schedule your clients, right? Look at how, um, you know, how much, how many people you want to put out there to work. And it's amazing. That's the 40%, you know, right there, you know, low hanging fruit. And that's why it's big business, but it's a lot, we have a lot of work to do in order to educate, get this data so integrated, you know. That's the, that's the part that I'd, I'd like to, to pull on a little bit, right? So um, talk to us a little bit, if you can, um, you know, a lot of folks that I talk to uh, about various types of data and information, um, you know, there's kind of a universal hue and cry about how do you really educate the end user as well as the check payer about the value and then how do you teach them how to use it correctly, right? So what's that education process look like, Don? Well, it, it, I think if you don't have amateur weather people you're talking to, it's a lot easier. Um, and you don't have folks that are carrying a lot of baggage about what they their perceptions about weather and what they think that 
that to yeah. me is the hardest part of my job is getting past that. Now, <laughs> if we could break through that, right? And which, you know, we work and, 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 and the credit to Pete, there are people out there that I, you know, are stakeholders and customers that do get it right. And when they get it, then we're already working on that second part of the problem. That second part of the problem is how to use it, what you need to use, how do we get it in the right workflows at the right time? You know, I like to go in and look at somebody's end-to-end -end workflow and say, let's talk about everything you do. And let me show you how weather impacts each component of that. And they're surprised. They are absolutely surprised. They never think about it, right? Because weather's yeah. the price of doing business. We've all accepted it. It's in our operations budget. You know, we're already spending, we already had it budgeted. You know, I have estimated that weather is about 15, weather costs you about 15% of your operating budget. So if, you, if you're spending a million and a half dollars or two, you know, a million dollars a year to go out and deploy people, to do stuff, pay them, blah, 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 probably 150,000, anywhere from 550,000 to 150,000 is just weather that has impacted you and it's cost you money. 5% maybe in the desert, you know, 150,000, 50,000 in the desert. And you say, how could you even have 50,000 in the desert? Well, because it's windy in the desert. And you have dust storms and it's hot and things don't work, you know. So there's always weather impacts. That's the other thing, you know. And then on the uh, 150,000 side, it would be more of your, uh, you know, northern climates where you get a lot of snow, rain, you know, fog, stratus. And, you know, you can get back 40% of that if you, if you want to follow the workflow, follow where to put weather decisions in the workflow and make the, and be very consistent about using that process and not do it like market timing or dollar. We want you to dollar cost average. All right. We don't want you to do market timing. Um, because as soon as you start getting out of the cycle, yeah. you're all whacked out, right? You're, you're never going to get back in. So that's what I try to educate. And we do have customers that get it because they're, they understand data. And if you can get past the fact that they, that, you know, these other weather baggage issues, then all of a sudden we can make a lot of progress. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, you know, one of the other topics you and I talked about, um, recently, um, was the use of weather for UASs, mm -hmm. right? And you've mentioned earlier, um, just a few moments ago, um, that you know weather below you know five thousand feet, two thousand feet is effectively non-existent except for you know amateur weather sites, et cetera, and you know anemometers that are kind of like strewn about the the countryside. Um, and that's at the surface. Know, and that's at the surface, right? So talk to us a little bit about you know. Um, as you called it, microclimate, micro weather, and uh, maybe in urban settings and, and some of the efforts you've got going on for that. Right. So generally speaking, let's just talk aviation in general. Right. So yeah. built a system uh, in aviation, weather, by the way, weather in aviation is the most regulated of any vertical, right? Like if I'm uh, Daryl and I know nothing about weather, I can still claim I do and sell weather information to anybody really except aviation because in aviation you have to get your weather from an authoritative source or an approved source and um and so that makes it the most regulated now the that's good and it's bad right um the good is that you know the standards are are, are to ensure safety you don't want to have you know faulty information that's 
you know, feeding into a system that's going to carry, you know, people's lives are at stake, right? So that's a good piece. And areas where we fly manned aviation aircraft, um, taking off in and out of airports are well instrumented, right? We spend a lot of money on ASOS stations and microburst detection. And, you know, we even have radar, whether yeah. even if it's, um, you know, aircraft surveillance radar, we can use it, we can pull weather data out of that. So, so those are well covered. And then, you know, once you get up into the atmosphere, you get out of the weather, right? And you can fly, right? So the weather impacts, you know, aren't as significant and we do have better measurements to avoid incidences. But when you talk about helicopters and general aviation, we have, it's really, it's really up to the pilot not to kill themselves when we give them a bad weather forecast. <laughs> um, because honestly, there's, you know, there are, you know, we, we are woefully inadequate in our measurements where those aircraft fly above a thousand, 2000 feet. But the thing is those aircraft at least have a person on them flying. They have eyeballs and they go, Oh, weather guy screwed me. I better get the hell out of here. And they go. The problem, and they're big and they're heavier and they could take more weather, right? They could take stronger winds. They could take, so they, you know, the risks are there, but they're rare. It's a rare event, right? With unmanned vehicles and drones, lighter drones, and even EV tolls for air taxis, they're, they're more weather sensitive. Uh, drones themselves are very dependent on battery and they have limited amount of capacity for battery. And if they hit winds that are 20 knots, 25 knots in the nose, they're going to have a bad day. They're either not, they're probably not going to finish their mission. It's going to cost them money. They're going to have to come back. They're going to have to refly tomorrow to get that imaging, or they're going to push it and they're going to wind up ditching their aircraft somewhere. Um, these, this is a problem. The winds are a major problem because that's one of our biggest blind spots above the ground. And you'd be surprised at how much the winds could change just above the tree line. I mean, you can go from, I, I could show you, you know, in my demos, you can have three knots of wind at the surface and blowing 25, 20 knots. As a former <laughs> helicopter pilot, Don, I'm right there with you, dude. So I can, I can promise you know, from personal experience, I know what you're talking about. So we don't have that data and there people are, you know, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad that we didn't kill you. And, you know, <laughs> put our bad weather forecast and, um, you know, there's no pilot on the aircraft. So you don't know what's going on. Now, winds you'll know because you'll say, oh, my God, I'm only doing one knot because and I should be doing 30. But the winds are blowing 29. So I guess I'm not going to go very far, very fast. That's what happens to drones. Right. Um, and even EV tolls, if you're talking about, say, a three person or four person air taxi, you know, some of these types of, uh, you know, EV tolls are being built by like Joby's or others. Great vehicles. You know, they're going to be super, but they have weather. You know, they can't handle those. I mean, it can, they can, you know, disruptive, rapidly changing wind conditions in an urban canyon where you go, you know, you got wake turbulence off of buildings that you, we can't predict that because we don't have buildings in our model, right? So all of a sudden, you know, Garrel has got his great suit on and he's going to take an air taxi from downtown to the airport and he gets on board and he, and he throws up on the way to the airport. Not a very good experience. And so... These are the things that we're working on in true weather. How do we handle like uncovering and closing these gaps that were acceptable in the past for helicopters and GA because we had a pilot on board or were acceptable because they were able to handle a little bit more weather. 
but now they're not going to, and they're flying in the place where we have the least amount of data. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, it's challenging. And, um, Today, I was even, uh, you know, I'm running the ASTM F38 weather standards for the UAV industry here in the United States. I, you know, I'm running the um, development of those standards. And the thing we keep running into is that the people in the FAA, especially in the lower and mid levels, get it. But it's the senior leadership that just say, well, we're just going to use demand aviation data. They don't really understand yet or fully comprehend that ha not having eyeballs on the aircraft is like flying blind to these pilots. And what's really interesting is that the FAA says the pilots responsible for having knowledge of the weather, which in which, which they're flying in. How do you do that if you're not on the airplane and the data is uncertain? How do you, and then how do you hold them accountable for that? And that, and, because we're not even giving them the tools. And this is the debate we're having right now. And I actually brought that up today in this forum. Um, so these are the challenges that were that you know weather and and drones and air taxis and that have to be kind of addressed. Yeah. So you know, so we're talking about standards. You know, so you know, you and I have had previous conversations about data validation, right? Uh, can you talk a little bit about you know weather data validation and what does that mean in the context that you just talked about about having to have you know weather that that is that is known, it's precise weather and it's got you know the the consequences for having bad weather data are severe. Right. So what, then talk to us a little bit about the, you know, your ideas on weather validation. Well, all right. So sticking with the aviation industry, because it's it's one that I, I understand very well and I, it's regulated. And um, is that today when you put instruments out on runways, you have to certify the instrument. So in other words, it goes through testing, validation. It costs lots of money and these in, it drives up the cost of those instruments. Right now, they're look, they're great instruments. I mean, you know, they give us ceiling height, you know, using a LIDAR. It gives us uh, visibility using other LIDAR and other sensors. It does a lot of great things. But the problem is, is that it's cert certifying sensors drives the price up and it really shrinks the marketplace, right? Because it's hard for smaller companies then to compete and build to those certifications. Not that they don't have sensors that are almost as good, but going through all the testing and the cost of that and the value, you just can't do it. It's expensive. So it drives the cost up. So, you know, what we're working on right now is, you know, trying to move the industry from certifying instruments to certifying data performance, right? In other words, I, you know, we should be able to use data from any sensor that has weather intelligence value, right? We should be able to use it from an IOT sensor. If it, if it's, if we know how good it is, right. We know, um, we, you know, we know it's reliable. We know how good it is and we know how to validate and calibrate that data against some other tech using techniques that we do do in weather already. Cause in weather we have to validate sensors because we don't want them to get in the models if they're misbehaving. So we actually throw out bad data and we know we have routines we can run where we use like nearest neighbor concepts and things like that to say this sensor is not behaving right. Or we look at historical and how it's behaving. And so there are ways to do validation calibration without, you know, having to have somebody at, you know, physically looking at the sensor or watching it. And we we've been doing this for years. We throw out bad data. And and so we need to take that kind of concept to to this data performance standard concept so that we don't have to, you know, we can use lower cost sensors. We can democratize it. We can leverage all this extra data that's out there to close these gaps I've been talking about. 
and we can improve the forecast and the situational awareness without having to invest in, you know, $8 billion in infrastructure for weather, because this is what the fact is. 3% of the country has the, is in a range of having a ceiling measurement. The rest of it is not. And that's because the only place you can measure the height of a cloud ceiling is at airports. And that's it. That's it. The only other way we do it, the only other thing we could do is we can interpolate, use some modeling to try to estimate what the ceilings are right now in other places, but we can't validate it because there's no measurements. So we're, you know, this is a big data, you know, garbage in, garbage out problem, even for real time ceilings, right? And the, and the, um, and right now the drone industry is not supposed to fly IMC. They're not supposed to be in clouds. Okay. So how are you going to enforce that if you don't know if they're flying, if they don't know they're in clouds because there's nobody on that aircraft. And, and the reason that that's important is because helicopters and general aviation has to be able to see these things when they come out of the clouds themselves. Yeah, it's all about seeing a void, you know? And so it's just, it's very frustrating because um, we can't put, ASOS, you know, ideally you have a grid across the United States of these ASOS stations every 10 miles, right? I did the math. It's $8 billion. It ain't going to happen, right? And, <laughs> and by the way, that's not the right solution either. Um, so we need to, you know, we need to understand that we can't pencil whip weather and wish it away anymore, you know, for this microclimate stuff because it's going to have real impacts on people. It's going to have real safety impacts and it's going to hurt the industry if we don't improve these measurements because when they start having accidents, what's going to happen? The FAA is going to go time out, everybody stop. And in my, that, that day that happens, that's when I didn't do my job because that's avoidable if we get ahead of it now. And that's what we're so, trying to do. So, so, so talk to us about what is the, you know, what is adequate instrumentation? Right. What does that look like in your mind? And, and what is, you know, what would be your recommendation? Right. So obviously setting up, you know, ASOS stations across the country is not the way to do it or around the globe, more like. Um, right. Yeah, so you uh, so, don't even have them in Africa today. And that's even at airports. Right. Right. So what so what is, you know, in in in, in Don's perfect world, what does that look like from a, a an implementation standpoint that's 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 feasible? Okay, so I think first we should recognize that I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. That I really have some experience in this area. Um, you know, when I when I was in the Weather Service, I was on the NOAA Observing Systems Council, and I was on. Uh, I started a working group with uh, a really talented uh, partner. Her name is Anka Will Willis, and we our job was to figure out an optimized sensing strategy for uh, for the globe for the United States, but not the micro level, but just at the, you know, more at the, we call it the mesoscale level, which is like, you know, regional, right? And, um, you know, the ultimately the answer is it takes a mix of sensors, right? That, you know, there's not one, one size does not fit all. You need to have um, redundancy in, you know, some of it, because remote sensing gets impacted by rain and, and, and clouds. So on days when it's cloudy and rainy, you need to have a, another sensor that could an in situ sensor to kind of support that. And then it's also using, um, there are some techniques we need to use in modeling and outcast that if you get enough sensors, it's kind of like reaching herd immunity with COVID, right? Take 80, if you get enough sensors that 
and an adaptive sensing where, you know, you don't put it on a grid, you put it where it's going to have the biggest impact, right? And you don't need to have a full weather station or a full suite of weather sensors at every location. You need to have the sensing that matters for what the problem set is. So I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I was um, talking to the FAA test center, which is doing a lot of testing now for urban air mobility, advanced air mobility. And we were talking about the problem of ceiling invisibility, right? Not having enough sensors and not knowing, you know, where, you know, what, you know, knowing that you have to be VFR, we call it visual flight rules and, and um, at certain points, but if you are a, um, you know, if you're flying a drone, how do you know if, you know, if it's going to be visual? Well, there's points where it becomes more critical to know that than other places, right? So you, you got to build a risk-based yeah. framework, right? So we're not going to need all those sensors in central Nebraska because, you know, the ground risk is not as high. And, you know, if you're carrying people, it's a higher risk than if you're carrying a pizza, right? So it has to be a risk-based sensing strategy that focuses on, what you're trying to solve, make sure that you have adaptive sensing strategy with different types of sensors. And if you blend it together properly and you hit the target on where you need them the most, the 80-20 rule, right? 20% of your costs cover 80% of your, your risk or your problem. Um, and then you, you, you blend that with machine learning and AI algorithms so that you can hit herd immunity, you hit herd immunity with enough sensors, right? Then you can really improve your modeling. So your modeling becomes more dependable in areas where there's no sensors, right? And then you do machine learning on that. And then you start having aircraft flying through those area and collecting data because they're safe now and they can fly. And you start learning about those local effects and you can feed that back into your machine learning. It's, that's how you, that's how you could get a lot of progress without, you know, spending $8 billion. But, you know, how do you do that, right? It's what I just described is a significant event. So I'm working with NASA very closely. Um, and I've we've actually won two grants with NASA to set up uh, urban weather infrastructure sensing test beds. And also another, another uh, SBIR for weather data uh, monitoring service, uh, which is a partner of ours that's gonna run that resilient. They're gonna be monitoring all these sensors that we're going to put out, some of them going to be IoT-like sensors. We're going to develop some of the algorithms for knowing when sensors are not behaving well, and and then we'll be able to throw those out. And then we're going to have an optimized sensing strategy that we're going to build based on some algorithms we're going to develop in machine learning. And then we'll we'll do targeted sensing based on the conops, like based on what it is they're trying to accomplish, where they want their verta ports, where they want their drone ports, where they want the main routes, where the heaviest traffic is going to be, not based on the science. Because see, the problem in the past, scientists have always driven the requirements for weather observations, which is important, all right? But a lot of the weather observations that we get today at airports, they're built also for the climate record. And we don't need that kind of pristine data. We need data that's operationally relevant. And so trying to build that op science, find that blend, that right mix, and and then and then run these models, which we have another SBIR to run these, uh, take this data and run some competition fluid dynamics models, do some machine learning with the new data sets that are coming in because a model's never 
good if it doesn't have data. If you just run a model, just because you have buildings and you blow a wind through it, doesn't mean it's gonna be right. You need to start validating and calibrating that, that model with real data and feeding that back in the system. And you could do that you know, in the city, you could do that in uh, say high corridor, high density corridor um, run areas for drones, say cargo lift drones that might go in a regional airport and they're flying at three or 4,000 feet. And uh, you just wanna do some high density sensing along that corridor, right? And that would be a mix of wind LIDARs that have rotation. Um, it could be um, uh, weather off the drones themselves. You can use cameras. Uh, and do some analytics. You could you can blend that with um, some real sensors on the ground, lower cost salometers to measure the heights of the clouds. You, you know, there's systems out there that are 15, 10, 10 to 15 times cheaper than an ASOS, and they're just as good. And and so, but they're not certified, right? So um, that's kind of the the way that you know, if I was able to say, how would you you know address this problem? That's how you'd address it. So. So we got to work it now. And I think it's going to be a public-private partnership. The government's not going to be able to do this themselves. And I give NASA a lot of credit for the way they're operating and doing this. They're bringing in private sector. They're incentivizing us to solve these problems. Uh, you know, not do basic research. That's the government's job. I'm not going to do basic research. But to take TRL, technical readiness level five, six, seven kind of capabilities and then in, and then test them and integrate them and 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 tweak them in our algorithms and get that out. It's gonna ex if we do this right, we can accelerate progress. If we hand this to the government to do, it won't happen in my lifetime. It, it won't. I'm not meaning that like sarcastically. I'm serious. As a you know, I'm serious. So this this is the challenge that you know um, we're all working. You know, and true weather's in the middle of it. Honestly. So, you know, as you look at this really, uh, you know, it, it's an amazing landscape when you really kind of think about, you know, all the fingers that you've, you've, you've got um, in the various weather organizations, you know, standards organizations, um, you know, test beds, et cetera. Um, you know, many of the folks that, that uh, they're going to be watching this particular, um, you know, conversation um, are going to wonder, okay, so how do they get involved? Mm -hmm. uh, what is it they should know? You have any recommendations about, um, you know, if we get like part 107 pilots that want to become involved, yep. you know, who do they contact? How do they kind of plug in and, and, and get more knowledgeable about this or, or, you know, join the fight and join the game? Well, that's a really good, that's a great question, Daryl. And um, I think that, you know, it starts with, you know, people who are really interested out there, operators that it's kind of like, uh, you know, a recovery. <laughs> it's kind of like recognizing I accept the fact that this is a problem and I want to help now or I want to do something about it. I would say anybody that's an operator out there that wants to do something about this and work with us, you just got to contact me, you know, don.burchoff at trueweathersolutions.com. You know, one of the big, you know, we never turn away, no matter how busy we get, I will never turn away a, an operator's interest in helping solve this problem because it's not going to happen with just us, right? It's We need the operators. And 
you know, if you tell, if they come to me and they say, this is how I would like to get interested, or here's what I really, really want to do, or, and I will get them to the right place. Right. Because the bottom line is, is I'm very well integrated with the whole UAS industry. Um, you know, we have, you know, we have customers out there that are big customers like Talis group and we're, you know, we support bell helicopter and we're, you know, we, we are also got a very large pipeline of folks that are ready to work with us once BV loss takes off, once the beyond visual line of sight, because that's really the key, right? We're still doing a lot of visual line of sight. Yeah. Whether, I mean, I can show you how you can save money, you know, using weather for visual line of sight, if you're interested, but it, the imperative to spend extra money on better weather services is going to happen when you get the BV loss because of the reasons I talked about. And so they're waiting and, and the day's coming when they're going to, they're starting to come now and say, let's tie in, let's bring your data in. Um, I could get them to wherever they want to go to be involved, depending on what it is they want, you know, they want to do. And uh, we're happy to do that because, you know, we, we want this industry to succeed. You know, my focus is to get them as much flight time as possible when weather's a factor, right? Increase the flight windows, reduce, reduce the uncertainty, increase the flight hours safely, get more revenue per, per, per asset, right? Make money because that's the only way this industry is going to prosper because it, honestly, the margins aren't that big in some cases. They're and, not, they're not, they're not big at all. No, right. So, right, right. so we want to help. That years and years ago, probably 20 years ago now, maybe 25 years ago, um, I was flying aerial photography uh, for the small company and they get a contract uh, for flying the, 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 the Hawaiian islands. And the whole idea was literally just an aerial photography gig, right? Just straight RGB fly all the Hawaiian islands. Right. Um, you know, they, they, they literally, um, they shipped an aircraft, a, two aircraft over, you know, from the West coast over to Hawaii. Um, that were all uh, STC'd and, and outfitted with with cameras. They had uh, two or three um, cameras each, and uh, they had two crews. And they figured it was going to take them, you know, something on, on the neighborhood of you know three to four months to do the entire mapping project. After two and a half years, <laughs> after two and a half years, they realized that Mauna Loa and Mauna Kea. Uh, are not exactly uh, cloud-free at pretty much any time. And the contract quite literally was written. So it was it was quite literally 100% cloud-free imagery. So they'd have, you know, they'd go out and collect and they'd have like a little wisp of a cloud in the corner of an image. So they go back and they park again, right? So how often does that happen, right? You hear they that all like, the time. It would drop. Right, and you know, and it's just, but you know, that, that was a bad contract. But it was just, it's sort of kind of the, it's like, you're never going to get there from here. Right. So how um, much had money, they had so better much, weather? Right. Well, just let's right? go to that contract a second. All right. Yeah. How how much how much money would have it cost them oh. to talk to one of my experts to tell them what the climatology is and how much cloud cover they're going to have and how many cloud free periods they're going to see so that they can put that in the contract and say. I need this much time. That's that exactly know? it. And how much did it cost them not doing that? I can't. It's that, that's exactly, millions but of dollars. So, right. The crazy part is that um, is that the government kept paying this crew to sit there on the ground. Well, that's so, the crazy part. Question yeah. for the uh, the new we'll call it new UAV providers. Mm -hmm. I mean, the industry 
from the UAV providers, even from the smaller guys, is growing faster than they're aware of some of these problems, right? right. So yeah. how do you letting some of these newer startups, mm. these newer folks aware that these problems actually exist? <laughs> that's, you know, that's being great. a part of the UAV community is one thing, but how do you introduce them to the community and introduce them to these problems that you mean, and honestly, we probably take for granted that we've known for a few years. Right, so how do you introduce that? Can you get that? So with your connections with the FAA, et cetera, when we get into the part 107 requirements, is, is how, about a, how about a weather training class that's a requirement that talks about these Be, very Because things? that's part of ground school when pilots have yeah, to train, but that's not, that's not part of, uh, that's no, not not. Part of UAV. Uh, well, you're opening up my, you, you ready to get me really spun up now? Okay, let's talk about the, F, <laughs> the part 107 weather training. Adam. Yeah. No, the part 107 weather training, right? And they, and, and no, everyone knows, I'll, I always say this, it's negligent. It's negligent because all they did was copy the manned aviation information. They spend more times on how to decode a TAF and decode a, a METAR than they do talking about winds above the tree level, which, which one is, they don't even use TAFs and METARs for visualized sight. You know why? They look at regular weather data, but we're not, so we're not even training them on the things that are relevant to their, what they're doing. So you're getting me passion here because it's very frustrating to me because it's a cut and paste thing, right? And it was intellectually very easy to, I don't want to say lazy, but it was. And, and the bottom line is, is we, we are now mistraining people in the part 107 training. They think that, oh, if I do this and this, I'll be okay. You know, I rather they didn't give me any training, quite frankly. I, I would have preferred no training. Um, so what I've been doing is I'm working with a lot of the flight schools now, the drone flight schools. And um, especially with BV loss, um, you know, we're, we're just going to supplement that training, right? So I've done a couple of, you know, gigs doing. In fact, I was asked to do the Part 107 training. I did a video and I felt dirty doing it, you know, and I wasn't even paid for it. I, you know, I, you know, but the bottom line is, is that, is that we've got to be really relevant about this, train folks right and I'm hoping that we could get that into the training schools that true weather is going to be part of that and, and lift that level up of training so that when they come through, they at least getting educated about this and then they can make a better decision about how they want to deal with it. Right. Whereas now they don't know. Um, so that that's a really good question. And, and the other thing is, you know, you talk about small businesses. So I um, I do a lot of speaking. Right. So I'm going to be at most of the major industry shows. Uh, this year, and I am speaking, you know, at AUVSI, I'll be speaking to the um, first responders and emergency managers about, you know, weather and education on this and try to, you know, help them improve their weather resiliency and TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures. Um, we, um, we, I'll be out at commercial uh, UAV and I'm actually co-hosting, well, co-partner co on a panel with uh, with Jay Merkel, the FAA uh, UTM integration executive director, and with Talis, we're going to talk in this forum about the thing, some of the things we talked about here, with a little less passion and a little, you know, a little less, uh, you know, comedy. But um, and then I'm in a drone. I'll, I'm going to be out there at in a drone, and I'm actually there's a there's another AVUSI SAE uh, 
uh, event coming up the 23rd and 24th of June here where I'm actually speaking and it's already been recorded. So I try to get out, you know, I do, a, I spend a lot of time trying to reach people um, and, uh, and just try to educate. And, you know, again, those that either believe it or don't see it as an inconvenience to deal with it. Um, those are the best customers we have, right? Because once they get it and they understand what this, you know, what we can do and what, they should be thinking about it's a risk thing, right? I always try to remind these pilots you're liable. I mean, this is not a toy. You know, I, uh, one of the FAA, uh, his name is, uh, Mr. Shea. He said, you know, to the emergency managers and to the first responders and the police, he said, you know, you just hit somebody, you hit a toddler with one of those drones and you hurt them. You're liable. And if you have been negligent in your, in following the proper procedures and protocols, that's not an excuse, right? Um, you know, weather is a liability problem. If, 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 if something happens and you did not take weather seriously and, and you have an accident, you're going to be liable. But if you use a true weather type service, I'm not just saying me only, but if you use us and, and, and leverage our capabilities, you're going to have some coverage there because you've used the best science has available Weather is, you know, weather is difficult and you follow a good procedure. It's going to be hard to hold you liable, right? For something like that. Sounds so, like, uh, sounds like you should be starting a weather insurance business instead. <laughs> well, I, if I had time, I probably would, right? Maybe Daryl, you want to maybe run with that on LLC? Yeah, sure. I'm on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. In my though. spare time. Yeah. Adam, you're right though. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, this, there's a lot of avenues here and um, to make weather data valuable. Right. And I always tell people there's a billion applications for weather data, but there's not enough people to work to get it, you know, into the right formats and, and, and the software to, to get it done right. And democratizing weather by having a billion small businesses is what I like to see. I like to see, I like to break big weather, right? Because big weather, I call it big weather. Um, you know, a lot of these companies that have have been in the weather business for many years um, and they, you know, they're not really focused on innovation as much as they're focused on revenue every quarter, right? And the there's so much innovation in the weather business. Remember I told you 80% of us want to be weather people since we're seven years old. So it's not like hard to find really, really passionate people that are smart and entrepreneurial. We've got to, you know, make this data, you know, and that's another thing I do. I'm on the American, I run the American Meteorological Society Committee for Open Environmental Information Systems. And um, what we're trying, you know, NOAA has been working very hard to get most of their data store that's been trapped in their vaults, in their computers out because they, you know, they have these, we used to have these, we had these huge data stores and then we have, you know, have a soda straw pipe. Right. And they, and they always say, well, we can't send you everything. So we're only going to send you, you know, 2% of what it is. And meanwhile, everything else is not being used. That's another pet peeve. You know, we, we'll get into another, you know, we, we spend billions of dollars on satellites, but we spend, you know, $25 million on ground systems and processing systems and data sharing systems. You know, I, I often tell people, I'd rather have a little less sensor so I can leverage all the good data and use it <laughs> properly. Right. I mean, you yeah, probably know this, right? That, I mean, that is an entire, <laughs> literally, that's like an entire uh, separate discussion that um, um, we'd love to be able to have you back. And literally, no, seriously, 
we, this has been, you know, believe it or not, we're like literally at the top of, you know, of our hour already. Uh, but, but, um, but, but you're right. It is a good discussion like, because there's a lot, not just weather. There's a lot yeah, of government right. organizations that have legacy data that they're trying to, they need to convert digitally and they're struggling uh, yes. with it. And the problem is that legacy data they're finding is uh, wh where they kind of just forgot about it, didn't care about it. Now at the age of machine learning and AI, you're like, we can use all that. Right. What is the, what is trends. the relevance of all oh, of yeah. that historical and archived data? It's, it has value. Problems. It now There's has value, value, but the question is, who's spending the time to figure out how to unlock it and then determining what that value might be? So yeah. uh, with your permission, we'd love to have you back soon. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, to talk. Yeah. We'll spend an entire other session. We'll spend another hour talking specifics about weather data and how do we do that? Yeah. If you're no, willing, we'd love to have you, man. No, no. I mean, so, the you know, the data, we want to unlock that data, but not just legacy, not just historical, which I agree with. We need that unlocked. Real time, real time data, yeah. you know, real like 2% of the real time data is getting out. And, and, and we want to get, so now is working to get that into three clouds, Amazon, Google, and uh, Azure. And they've all agreed, you know, they all got contracts to, to take that data and make it easily, more easily accessible to end users, right? But that's only a small piece. We need all the commercial data, we, data discovery. If you could get all that data into a sandbox and then you bring small businesses in with really smart software engineers that really know how to write code, I could solve you those billion, you know, just, you know, we'll solve, we'll knock off 10% of that billion every year. Right. But mm -hmm. the problem is, you know, it, it, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hurdle. So, um, yeah. So that's another challenge for another day that I'm going to take on, but um, it is. yeah, it is. no, this is good. I hope, you know, I hope this was helpful. I mean, I hope it sparks some thinking, right. Is in learning, you know, hey, Don, we really appreciate you being on, man. This is, you know, um, fascinating topic. And as a, uh, um, uh, a guy who doesn't fly anymore, but wishes he did, um, and, and watching kind of the evolution of this species that is, you know, that is aviation weather. Now that we've gone from you know commercial to to, to private pilot, now we're into the 107 and, and, and multiple and then air taxi pieces, and then all the freight pieces, and then all the other impacts of weather onto our everyday lives. Um, fascinating topic and one that's absolutely I mean, obviously it's a it's an industry it's underserved and uh, you know absolutely love to have you back and let's. Let's dig into data because, you know, Adam and I are both geeking out over here. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Just give me lots, the topic. To we'll talk data. We'll talk We'll talk uh, when the GOES-R satellite was being put up and uh, they wanted to put more sensors on. And uh, I said, okay, so more data on the floor. You know, I used to have this vision where it gets taken into the ground control systems and it goes into the – Water it gets released into the Potomac River and just floats out to the Atlantic Ocean. Is that, <laughs> that's you know that's about the value yeah. of it. You know, uh, it, it it just you know used to draw and you know they were doing better, yeah. but it's yeah you know, there's still still a lot of work to do. <laughs> You'll how's awesome. that for a vision, huh? What that <laughs> that's were you on the Maryland or the Potomac side while you're watching this go out Maryland or Virginia side Virginia right. yeah and you could see you could see like the lightning bolts and you know the the radar you know the weather radar imaging just floating down the river you know like yeah. there's skimmers out there like guys like small businesses are out there trying to get some of it you know uh <laughs> so
No, I well, yep. Well, well, Don, well, I want to, once again, appreciate you popping on with us yeah. and let the audience Thank know you. if you have any comments, uh, we're going to post this video in the next uh, couple days that people can watch the recording of this session. Feel free to comment. If you have any messages with, uh, in lieu of reaching out to Don directly, uh, you'll feel free to re relay comments through us as well. And we can send it to, to, uh, Don at true weather. So once and, again, and it's true weather with T R U and yeah. the word weather, right? No, no E, no E. So, this has been uh, this is uh, Project Geospatial with uh, Adam and Daryl uh, view the world with Don Birchoff here with True Weather. Uh, thanks everybody for watching.